Well, turn your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter uh, 11 as we continue there this morning. Hebrews chapter 11. Even from what Kevin shared this morning, we know we are living in nutty and demented times. But the reality is it's always been that way. And there's always been a need for great biblical courage in the midst of this world, this side of heaven. We know we live in a time where more and more it grows hostile toward Christ-following Christians. It's difficult to be a parent. We're deciding in our culture what is a woman and what is a man. God's sexual ethic is continually, con consistently challenged. 2,600 babies a day are murdered in the womb. We live in a time where churches teach and live like the world's culture. We live in a world where we're part of it. We are tempted and allured and enticed and seduced and charmed to follow the pattern of this world. My goodness, biblical courage is needed. We are people pleasing, the natural bent of us humans. Biblical courage is needed. We medicate the pain of life in self-destroying ways. Man, I read, uh, read last week over 120,000 people died of drug overdoses. Highest ever this past year. Uh, two years ago, two of my friends lost sons. We live in a culture where sin is rampant. Sin's always been rampant. Therefore, biblical courage has always been needed from God's people. I could go on and on and on for the entire 35-minute sermon, listing all these things that we are fighting against, and biblical courage is needed. And this morning, the writer of Hebrews shows us through the life of Moses what it looks like to live a life of biblical courage. General Patton, I'll put on your notes. I don't get to quote Patton much because of his language. <laughs> but he said, human beings are made up of flesh and blood and a miracle called courage. Anytime biblical courage is acted out, it is for sure a miracle. Biblical courage, we'll see this morning, is a byproduct of biblical faith. As we continue in Hebrews 11, we notice that Moses, if you read that chapter, is given the second amount of ink, only uh, number two uh, in terms of Abraham was number one. These two men stand as the most prominent figures in Jewish history. F.F. Bruce said, the eye of faith can see what is invisible to the physical eye. Moses, in all his interactions with Pharaoh and with all the wanderings in the wilderness, was conscious of God's presence in a remarkable way, which gave him the courage to obey when no one else was. That's why the writer of Hebrews and we teaching it, the first part of this whole teaching in Hebrews was what? Draw near. 
Moses knew what that was like. Moses has been called the fountainhead of the Old Testament because he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And the New Testament sees Moses as a type of Christ, as Moses pointing to Jesus himself. So Moses models for us a biblical faith in life's most difficult circumstances where we need to live and apply it. So let me, I'm going to work through this text verse by verse. Courage to defy the king is our first point. Read with me in verse 23. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Exodus chapter 1 sort of lays out for us the platform of where Moses' parents got its faith. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in that text in Exodus, sees a problem. It is the growing population of the Israelites or the Hebrews. They're getting stronger and stronger. There are many of them, and they are becoming mighty, the text tells us. So he has three solutions to stop this. There's fear brewing in the king. The first solution in Exodus 1 tells us was to place taskmasters over them to keep them in check. And that didn't work. So the second solution was to intensify their work as slaves. He just hammers them. He was ruthless. And that didn't work. So he gave them, he gave a third solution, which was, we'll read in Exodus 1, 15 through 22. It says, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Think about that, the Nile River. But you shall let every daughter live. So we see that the Egyptian midwives, they refused to obey Pharaoh. So the final solution was to throw every baby into the Nile River or every mill. A writer tells us in verse 27 that after Moses' birth, the parents hid him for three months. All the Hebrew boys were being thrown in the Nile River, but Moses' parents didn't do that. Think about what they had to go through to conceal a pregnancy. Nine months, maybe wearing a bigger uh, dress, Covering it up, staying inside. He was born in secret, Moses was. 
which is so hard to do, but they could not hide him any longer. And Exodus 2 tells us, therefore she placed Moses in a basket and placed it in the reeds by the bank of the Nile River. You want to act of faith? There is one right there. A writer gives us two reasons for this act of faith. One, it says they saw the child was beautiful. Now, I had four children. I saw three of them born, and none of them looked beautiful in birth. You know what I mean? They look wore down. <laughs> but Stephen in Acts 7 tells us Moses at birth was beautiful in God's sight. And, and many of the writers said there was a, there's a recognizing by Moses' parents that God had a special call on his life. And so that's the first reason. Secondly, they were not afraid of the king's edict or king's command. Their options, if you think about it, were twofold. One, save their life and give up their son's life or risk their own life in order to save their son's life. So their act of faith was to disobey the law and therefore disobey the king himself. Now Moses' parents, they were just ordinary, blue-collar, everyday Hebrew folks. There was nothing special about them, but they were people of faith. They trusted in the promises of God, and that bred biblical faith, or biblical courage. Biblical faith compels us to take risks for the kingdom of God. Biblical faith frees us even from the fear of death. They had to process all of that. One writer put it this way. He says, Moses was born in an incubator of faith. At home, where his parents influenced the boys for the first four years of his life, that was when he was weaning, until he weaned from his mother in that culture, and that faith eventually shook a nation and the redemptive history of Israel. So our first application this morning is a profound but simple question, and that is to parents, no matter what stage you're at, but particularly parents of young children. Is your home an incubator of faith? There's a million implications of that. But do your kids know that you are trying your best to follow the Lord Jesus and to trust him with all of life? Do they see you opening the scriptures? Not because you intend them to, because you do it so much, they can't help but see you because you, are, you want to be a person with great courage because of biblical faith. So we have courage to defy the king by the parents. And then secondly, there is courage to refuse what I will call the Egyptian dream. Look at verses 24 through 26. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The Bible clearly teaches 
that hard work is a good thing and that out of that hard work, you and I can enjoy the fruits of our labor. It comes straight from the book of Ecclesiastes. But the American dream, folks, goes way past that. The American dream is the pursuit with all of your heart to find happiness via material success and power and position. It is in some ways pursuing at any cost, which in turn destroys you, it destroys your family, and it destroys your ability to mature spiritually. The American dream's goal is to make much of you and is in direct conflict with God's goal for us as his people, which is to make much of him. In verses 24 through 26, Moses reaches manhood, it says. He's grown up. He's been in the house of Pharaoh for approximately 36 years with the Egyptian dream right at his fingertips. 40 years old. Weaned from his mother at four years old, as was prominent in that culture, as I said, he was taken from his parents to be raised in the home of Pharaoh. Now, I see your Facebook posts, and I know what it feels like to you, because I know what it felt like to us to send our kid off to kindergarten. You know what I mean? It was like, oh my, biggest thing ever. Imagine your four-year-old moving into the home of Pharaoh to be raised. Moses goes from being born and raised in an incubator of faith into a home with zero faith. In this home, he's nurtured, nurtured and educated in everything Egyptian. He would have received the best education in the world at that time, and he would have been also immersed in the idolatry of the pagan Egyptian gods. I'm asking myself, how in the world did Moses keep his biblical faith? You feel the tension there. The reality is, as a man, Moses had a decision to make. And that decision was, will I choose power, prestige, and riches versus choose and oppress people that are enslaved who go around believing the promises of an invisible God. Those are the choices. Would he be an Israelite or an Egyptian? Because here's the reality. He can't be two. He can't be both of them. You and I can't be both. A Christ follower and a world follower. It doesn't work. Jesus put it this way. You, you, you cannot serve. He didn't say you might could. You cannot serve two masters. There's no choice for him to be an Egyptian light. Verses 24 and 25 tell us what he chose. And it reads, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. His decision was clear. He refused power, position, prestige, and privilege and a guaranteed prosperous future that typically men hold near and dear. He refused all of that. How did he do this? 
The writer tells us by faith. He was living as if he had the title deed, which he did, in his hand as he walked through this life, and the title deed pointed toward his future with God. Tim Keller puts it another way for you and I. He says, for us, when we see with the eye of faith, we see Christ dying to make us his treasure. That in itself is intended or should make him our treasure. So Moses was seeing with the eye of faith, but the reality is what we trust in, what we worship, and what we trust in, we worship, and what we worship, we serve. So when we trust in the American dream to bring us happiness and joy, it is that American dream in which we are worshiping. And on the flip side, when we make a decision to deny ourselves or to deny the American dream, we are also making a decision simultaneously to make much of God, which is worshiping him. Now, verse 25 tells us this in light of those comments. He chose suffering with God's people. The choice comes out of this decisive event in Exodus 2, 11 through 14. Put that down. It's wild. He goes out and he sees the reality of the situation that his people, the Israelites or Hebrews, are in. The text tells us that he sees an Egyptian taskmaster who is beating an Egyptian or a Hebrew slave. And it says he looked this way and he looked that way. And he didn't see anybody that was looking and he killed the Egyptian taskmaster. Many of you are familiar with that. At that very moment, the die was cast. At that moment, he renounces whether he wanted to or not. Look, he knew the decision he was making. Once he killed the Egyptian, he renounces his position as the son of Pharaoh's daughter and is locking arms irreversibly with God and his people. Alec Moter, the great theologian in the book of Hebrews, puts it this way. The killing of the Egyptian was foolish. It lacked vision and foresight, but at the end of the day, the fruit of that choice was to suffer with God's people. But there's a second choice he made, the writer tells us, and that is choosing not to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Make no mistake, Moses woke up every day Every single day for those 36 years and right in front of him was unrestricted decadence in whatever form he wanted, wine, women, and worldly pleasures. And all he had to do to get them was to say, I want them. And they were his. And I want you to notice too, if you read your Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that sin is not pleasurable. It tells us that sin appeals to our lust, to our pride, to our flesh. It holds out a promise to us. It says, choose me and I'll make you happy. But sin never tells you about the law of diminishing returns that turns us into an addict. 
It never says, I'll rob you. It never says, I'll ruin your life. I'll destroy everything in your life. It always, sin always tastes sweet at the beginning, but it always ends in a bitter bite of bitterness. So biblically, when we think about the pleasures of sin, they're not phony, the Bible tells us. They're real. They're just temporary. And they're foolish in light of us being eternal beings. And ultimately, it will destroy human flourishing, and it dulls, kills, destroys our spiritual senses. Blaise Pascal, the great French philosopher, mathematician, he speaks of how God has hardwired you and I to be happy. It says, all men desire to be happy, and women. It's the cause of why some men go to war and why some avoid war. Even those who hang themselves desire to be happy. So to desire to experience pleasure is, is not necessarily wrong because as you and I made in the image of God, it is hardwired in us to want it. The reality is, though, we will never get it. Ultimately, it will never be fulfilled unless we find it in God alone. Here's what the psalmist says. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There's the draw near part that the writer of Hebrews has been drilling us with for 10 chapters plus. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. R.C. Sproul brought it together when he said, only if we believe God's promises about our future can we maintain joy in the midst of suffering. I want you to notice the reason for Moses' choice, verse 26. It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to a reward. That word considered means calculated. He thought about it. He calculated. He worked it in his mind and heart based on what he knew about life being temporary, based on what he knew about God and who he was. He calculated this decision. Now, the reproach of Christ there is really similar in meaning to what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he writes, Indeed, I count everything. There's a calculation, Paul says. I am calculating everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I calculate them as rubbish. I consider them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. The writer of Hebrews has told us throughout the book, Jesus is superior. Moses has calculated that truth. Jesus made the same calculation in Hebrews 12. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The glory of the Father is the greater reward. The harder way, but the best way when we calculate it correctly, based on the promises of God, according to Paul and Jesus and Moses, is to refuse the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
John Piper says this. He says, faith is a hunger for God that triumphs over our hunger for pleasures of this world. So some would say, quit being hungry. <laughs> you can't. God has wired in us hunger for joy, hunger for happiness, hunger for satisfaction. So if you're going to not be hunger for the world, you can't just stop being hungry. Anybody gone through a day and not been hungry physically? Nobody. I, I'm hungry all the time. <laughs> the reality is, though, you have to replace it with hunger for something else. It's the only way it works. We must replace one hunger for the other to have the courage to refuse the Egyptian or American dream for us. So we have courage to defy the king, courage to refuse the Egyptian dream, and then courage to leave Egypt. Verse 27. It says, By faith he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is visible. So by the time our writer gets to verse 27 in the life of Moses, Moses has killed the Egyptian, and God sent him off, if you remember the story, to get a 40-year theological degree. 40 years in the desert. Remember that? He has suffered in the desert. He's now 80 years old. So 40 years after Moses left the first time fleeing for his life after killing the Egyptian, he is now back telling the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go because God told me to tell you that or else. The text tells us Moses was not afraid of the anger of the king. Now, he felt fear. If you remember the story, Moses had the public speaking disease, sort of like me. He was afraid to get up front and talk, right? That's sarcasm. But he said, I'm afraid, so God gave him Aaron as his mouthpiece. But faith in the words of God produced in Moses courage to do what he was supposed to do, even though he was afraid. For us, it says, fear is real, but it's not an excuse to disobey. Imagine standing before the most powerful man in the world and telling him to let two million slaves in whom his economy depends to let them go now or else. I'm sure Pharaoh was like, my bad, bro. You know, like, I don't know what I was thinking. Come here, Moses, man. We No. He actually increases the labor of the Hebrew slaves. You know the story. God sends nine plagues. He's got blood. He's got frogs. He's got lice. He's got flies. He's got darkness. And after the tenth plague, where the angel of death passes over and kills every firstborn Egyptian, Pharaoh finally gives in. But we also know that Pharaoh had a quick change of heart. Immediately after they left, Pharaoh chases, gets 600 chariots, and chases the Hebrews down to kill them as this conflict escalates as the Israelites are standing at the shore of the Red Sea. 
So when our writer says Moses was not afraid of the king, he's given this big picture of how over and over and over, through the nine plagues, through leaving, through standing on the shore as the chariots approach, how Moses was not afraid of the most powerful man in the world. John Calvin put it this way. He says, the exodus departure was fearless of the evil beast that Moses had consistently harassed. Go read it. Moses is harassing him with great courage. How did he do this? Verse 27, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. We've said this word a couple times, sanctified imagination. There's a God who is there. There's a God who cannot lie. He has told me what to do. He is seeing him who is invisible. He even had to endure his own people. As they heard the rumbling of the chariots, they stood at the shore of the Red Sea. Here's what the people said to Moses in Exodus 14. Was it, Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. Now, you know they didn't say no such thing. He would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never See again. Now Moses is about to pull his beard out hair by hair, but he stands firm with great faith in the promises of God, which breeds radical biblical courage. R.C. Sproul summarizes it. He says, unless we know God deeply, <clears throat> we cannot love and obey him deeply. Moses' intimacy with God was the fuel that gave him the faith to trust him, which bred biblical courage. So we have courage to defy the king by his parents. We have courage to refuse the Egyptian dream or our American dream. We have courage to leave Egypt. And lastly, we have courage to inaugurate the Passover. Look at verse 28. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, I mentioned this. I mentioned the 10th plague sent to Pharaoh and the Egyptians is recorded in Exodus chapter 11. And here's the summary of it. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, including Pharaoh's firstborn, and there will be a great cry in the land, which the text tells us in Exodus 11, there has never been before and there will never be again. Moses goes to the Israelites and tells them, folks, we're going to start a tradition. We're going to inaugurate this annual feast to celebrate what God is about to do to set us free. And it's going to be called the Passover. In Exodus chapter 12, Moses gives specific instructions to the people of Israel. He says, take the blood of a spotless and a perfect lamb, 
wipe it over your doorpost of your homes. And in doing so, when the angel of death comes around midnight, Exodus 12 says, the angel will pass over your home and your firstborn will live. Now, I want to ask a question. Do you think the people of God, the Israelites, were meticulous in listening to and applying Moses' words that night? There was no, well, what do you think? Do you, do you think we should do this? No, they did it specifically. There was a lot on the line. And if it sounds familiar, it should. The blood of the perfect spotless lamb will protect you from the wrath of the living God. That is a promise you can bank your hope on. Moses and the Israelites simply trusted in the words of God. It is not logical. <laughs> it's illogical. Logic would say we need to hide under the bed. Logic would say we need to send our firstborn to uh, Auntie Gentile's house, you know? But no, this is a reminder that biblical faith rests solely on the words of God alone, that we take his promises at face value, whether it makes sense or not, because his promises, again, come from a God who cannot lie. Now, the question is, what happened that night, the 10th plague, when the angel of death passed over Egypt? The firstborn of the Egyptians, they all died. And the firstborn of the Israelites were as safe as could be. Moses inaugurating the Passover is really unfolding for you and I the gospel. Paul makes this connection, if you would, in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Folks, the gospel says that the wrath of God is coming for all of those who have not trusted in the blood of Jesus by faith. Our perfect Passover lamb. Judgment is coming but you can be safe in the blood of Christ. So the lamb dies so you and I don't have to. The lamb dies as a substitute for you and I. And the Israelites, as I said, banked their entire hope on that blood over the doorpost. And you and I are to bank our entire hope of our eternity on the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And here's what happens after we place our trust in Christ initially, that's the first time we are trusting in the promises of God. And then for the rest of our lives, we grow in trusting in what? The promises of God based on the security of that first promise. Here's how D.L. Moody spoke of Moses. I think it's great application for us. It says, Moses spent 40 years years thinking he was a somebody, 40 years learning he was a nobody, that's when he went to the desert for 40 years, and then 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody who trusts in the promises of God. Folks, that's our Christian life. That's sanctification. 
We are strutting around thinking we are somebody, and God in his great mercies breaks us down, shows us that we're a nobody, but he makes us somebody in Christ. He starts doing a great work in us, although many times, if not most times, if not all the time, very painful, because he, he took Moses out of Egypt, but he spent 40 years getting Egypt out of Moses. And then he uses us as we grow in trusting the promises of God. So this morning, as we ask the question, so what? I want you to be very specific. I want you to pick one of those four points. There are people in this room, I know I had to go through this myself, who need to defy something. There's some of you who need to refuse something. You need to leave something. It's killing you. And you need to inaugurate to start new something. There may be multiple points. But the so what is this morning, very specifically apply to you. What do you need to defy, refuse, leave, or inaugurate to continue well in trusting in the promises of God by faith, which produces incredible biblical courage. Take a minute to do just that. Jesus, we cherish the reminder this morning that you are our Passover lamb. You are our savior. You are our deliverer. You are the only one that can carry us through this life and bring us safely, completely into the presence of our creator. So we're grateful for that. We praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that somehow this biblical faith that we have in you would enable us to abandon ourselves to your care and strengthen our resolve to follow hard after you wherever you might lead through whatever circumstances we might face. trustworthy and good. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.